Good morning, everyone. Monarch butterflies used to be a common sight in late summer and early fall in Waterloo Region. This is the time of the year when the monarch population typically peaks in number and masses of the iconic butterflies begin their epic southward journey. I recall driving along Hackbark Road in Woolwich Township in 2002 when the air was ablaze with the big orange insects. The kaleidoscope of migrating monarchs was so dense that, that, that I had to stop repeatedly to avoid inflicting heavy losses. Today, you'd be lucky to encounter a single monarch along that road. Their demise in Waterloo is part of a widespread decrease of monarchs across eastern North America. Attrition has been so severe, a shocking 84% drop in abundance from 1996 to 2014, that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature classified them as an endangered species of July this year. In 2019, the scientific journal Biological Conservation reported that 40% of all insect species were declining globally. Many people in this audience can recall how several decades ago a car windshield would be plastered with bugs after even a short evening drive in summer. Now you could motor for hours with nary a smudge on the window. Insect collapse in China is so steep that armies of people are being used to pollinate orchards by hand using paintbrushes and feathers on sticks. 26 native bumblebee species inhabit Ontario, and once common ones like the rusty patched bumblebee are gone, three others are hanging by a thread. When you add up the significant global losses of birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, fish, and insects, with all these declines amplified by climate change, one can't help but feel that nature is being upended. That's the grim news. But it doesn't have to stay that way. We don't have to passively watch biological richness swirl down the extinction drain. There is a new approach to conservation that starts in our own yards. Its premise is that many wildlife populations are declining because the native plants they depend on are disappearing. The solution is amazingly simple, practical, and doable. Plant native plants. This is not an advocacy for letting your lawn go wild and allowing nature to run its course. Doing so would inevitably result in an unkept, weedy tangle, signaling neglect and lack of purpose. Instead, the idea is to use intentional plantings of native species to create attractive landscapes that drive food webs, and support critical pollinators such as bees and butterflies. Habitat loss and degradation are the two main drivers of the current biodiversity crisis. Habitat loss can occur on a large scale. Think of Waterloo Region in the 19th century when settlers declared war on trees, carving up the magnificent old growth stands that had evolved relatively undisturbed for thousands of years and reducing regional forest cover from 80% to a skeletal 12% in less than 90 years. We lament the loss of tropical rainforest today, but should recognize that we had our Amazon deforestation moment several centuries ago. 
Habitat loss continues in the region today, but at a smaller scale. A new subdivision here, a warehouse there, a superhighway. Development often occurs at the expense of remaining wild patches that are dismissed as being vacant, empty, or underutilized, with little thought given to their ecological value. Habitat degradation is often less visible than habitat destruction, but its effects can be just as deadly. Consider that our urban environment is practically bereft of native trees and herbaceous plants. Instead, we're surrounded by an assemblage of turf grass, ornamental shrubs and trees originating in Asia, Europe, South America, anywhere it seems, and from our own locale. You might wonder how this profusion of imported plants could be harmful, considering they increase biodiversity. Let me explain how habitat degradation works using an example from our neighborhood on Avondale Avenue in Waterloo. Many of the trees growing along the street and in the front and backyards are large, mature, and so numerous that they frequently form a canopy such as you might find in a rural forest. Yet, what's missing in our locality are forest birds that are common and widespread in the countryside, nesting in even the tiniest woodlot and shrubby fence rows. But none of these birds, red-eyed vireo, gray-crested flycatcher, Baltimore oriole, indigo bunting, ever breeds in our leafy yards. Why the absence when so much apparently suitable habitat exists? The real reality is that the urban forest, despite its green appearance, is not even remotely suitable to forest birds. Our cities are awash in Norway maples. It's number one shade tree across North America. And it and other non-native trees typically comprise 90% or more of the urban tree cover. And that's a pity, because insects don't much care for the imports. Sugar maples and their indigenous relatives support at least 285 caterpillar species, and native oaks host an astonishing 534 different caterpillars. By contrast, Norway maples attract fewer than 10 caterpillar species. Caterpillars are a primary food item for birds, and it is little wonder that forest birds avoid Norway maples as if their lives depended on it, which in fact they do. The country birds occur in habitats full of native trees. Replace the Norway maples in our cities with a community of native trees, and we would be opening up vast new habitat vistas for insects, and in turn, for birds during the nesting season and during migration, when birds are desperate for dependable food sources. Imported vines, ground covers, and perennials pose similar problems for native insects. English ivy and periwinkle are touted as pest-free ground covers, and they certainly live up to that billing, hosting zero caterpillar species. For all the good it does an insect, you may as well be putting out plastic plants. Worse than a plastic plant, though, these two ground covers are highly invasive, escaping cultivation and crowding out native plants in natural areas everywhere. Our homegrown goldenrods and asters, by contrast, are beautiful insect powerhouses that each sustain over a hundred different caterpillar types and are bee and butterfly magnets to boot. Native insects may derive nutrition from the nectar of flowering non-native plants, 
but they have not evolved the capacity to eat the leaves and stems, an essential requirement during the larval stage. We are starving the insect world because of the plant choices we make. This is critically important because insects are the little engines that drive the world. Insects pollinate the plants we eat, are essential decomposers, and are the primary link in the food chain that other animals, including humans, depend upon. Native plants and insects are the foundation of a diverse and sustainable ecosystem. Development can be confounding. A bulldozer is brought in to level the terrain and remove the local flora and fauna. Houses are built and the subdivision and streets are named after the natural features that were just wiped out. Names like Forested Hills, Sumac Ridge, Meadowlark Drive. The denuded streets and yards are then decorated with plants that evolved in far-flung corners of the globe or in distant North American ecoregions. This sterile, artificial environment is then called home. I was pleasantly surprised to read back in the early 1990s in a Sunday newspaper, no less, an ordained Anglican priest imploring us to rethink our relationship to nature. It was the first time I had encountered a religious leader of any denomination professing a deep love and concern for the environment. Tom Harper wrote a weekly column in the Toronto Star. In one of his columns, he declared that, quote, the Ten Commandments, though still valid, are completely lacking in concern for our relationship to other species and to the earth itself. They prohibit adultery, murder, and lying, but say nothing about the rights of animals, rivers, oceans, and forests. We need an eleventh commandment, which says, you shall not commit geocide, the killing of the planet, end quote. Harper believed that the concept of neighbor is used by Jesus when he exhorted people to treat others as they themselves would like to be treated must be extended to include the soil, air, streams, and all living creatures. Similar sentiments have been expressed 50 years earlier by a Wisconsin ecologist, Aldo Leopold. He was convinced that a new societal value, something he termed a land ethic, was needed to counteract the violence to nature resulting from human carelessness, indifference, and greed. He dreamt of a world where humans humbly and graciously accepted their roles as citizens of the natural world rather than its conquerors. For him, land was a community to which humans belong rather than a resource to be owned. On land use, he wrote that, quote, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. And a new generation of conservationists is, is expressing its version of a land ethic. In a garden for the rusty-patched bumblebee, Lorraine Johnson argues that it's not good enough just to protect remaining habitat. We must also recreate it in places that have been green paved by lawns and non-native species. And we must form a new relationship with insects, treating them not as adversaries to be exterminated, but as allies and members of an intricate and intimate community essential to planetary health. 
Douglas Tellamy, an entomologist at the University of Delaware, is a leading proponent of the movement to rejuvenate nature using local native greenery. In his book, Bringing Nature Home, he maintains that we need to scrap the age-old notion that humans and nature are incompatible, that humans are here and nature is out there, usually in a remote and distant park. Nature is all around us. The local ecosystem provides us with many services, the oxygen we breathe, the fresh water we drink, the food that sustains us. Do we not have an obligation to give something back in return for all that we are freely given? Ptolemy believes that the best hope for effective conservation lies, ironically, where most people now live, in cities and suburbs. With the right choice of plants, city dwellers can create natural communities packed from the ground up with native species that sustain complex food webs, store carbon, filter water, and support pollinators. Every household and apartment can enlist in the cause. Multiplied by hundreds and thousands of gardens across the land, these habitat units can become engines for biodiversity and environmental health. Ptolemy estimates that if each household in the U.S. would commit half of its lawn to productive native plant communities, 20 million acres of wildlife habitat would replace what is now essentially urban desert. At Rockway, a core group of seven people, Martina, Ian, Bob Dingman, Hulaine Montgomery, Michael Graham, Carol Weaver, and I, along with occasional help from others, have over the past 18 months transformed the degraded boulevards bordering the church parking lot into a series of pollinator gardens. Boulevards have earned the title of hell strips to gardeners and we quickly learned why. But we had terrific leadership, good plant and landscaping expertise, a hardworking group, generous financial backing from the church and we persevered. We eradicated many of the alien plants by solarizing the boulevards with black plastic sheets. Some plants, particularly thistles and dandelions, survived the treatment, and we repeatedly dug them out, a difficult task given their roots that extend deep into granite-hard soil. We revitalized the area with topsoil and mulch and brought in a variety of native plants, 220 individual plants covering 37 species, encompassing grasses, perennials, shrubs, vines, and small trees with overlapping flowering periods to provide a continuous supply of nectar and pollen. From early spring to late fall, we took turns watering the tiny transplants two or three times a week to get them established. Future work includes replacing plants that died, infilling areas with additional plants, and restoring several more boulevards that remain in a derelict state. The gardens are already providing food and habitat for insects and birds and will foster pollinator populations that have co-evolved with the plants over thousands of years. We've created a colorful, welcoming space that provides an authentic sense of home and place. Nature can rehabilitate itself quickly if given the chance. It can do so even faster if we lend it a helping hand. A balcony is all you have? Fine, put out an aster or a goldenrod for bees and butterflies. 
No space is too small because small patches of wildflowers can have huge ecological value. All of the land we live on used to be covered in forest and would revert to forest almost instantly if humans were to magically disappear. So plant a native tree. Not only will you be helping the caterpillar and the birds, but you'll be making a positive difference in the fight against climate change. Diane Beresford Kroger, in her book, To Speak for the Trees, insists that climate change can be stopped in its tracks if every person on Earth planted one tree per year for the next six years. The banner hanging on the side of the church urges us to act now. We know what needs to be done, and we have the blueprint for how to do it. In braiding sweetgrass, in eloquent celebration of the power and beauty of native plants, Robin Kimmerer writes that, quote, it is our relationship to the land that is broken, not, not the land itself. Gratitude for all the land has given us is the first step in the process of restoration. It's time to repay the debts. And so take up the challenge and begin to right some of the wrongs we have inflicted on our fellow earthlings for the betterment of them and of us. We can help change the trajectory of the bumblebee from plight back to flight. Thank you. <laughs>